0: Get ready to embark on a tranquil journey through enchanting narratives. Welcome to a world of soothing dreams. Welcome to Bibbix Bedtime Stories. Hi, this is Orion, and you're listening to Orion's Bedtime Stories podcast. While I have a number of short stories and fairy tales here, for the next little while, I'll be sharing a large chapter book with you, Illusions. Paula Volsky. For 200 years the exalted classes have ruled over Vonar by virtue of their dazzling magical abilities. Now, their powers grown slack from disuse, they concentrate on the pleasures their station affords them, ignoring the misery of the lower classes. It is only when the red tide of revolution sweeps aside all distinctions of rank, home, and family that the exalted realize the gravity of their mistake. Thrust into the very center of the conflict is the beautiful Elise Faux de Rival, spirited daughter of a provincial landowner. Now, like those she disdained, she must scramble for bread in the teeming streets of the capital city, the key to her abilities, an elusive secret, and find a way to survive in a world gone mad, with liberty. forgot her troubles, for the old gentleman before her was surely worthy of attention. He was staring down into her grandmother's face with the still look of a successful gambler. Zeriland's expression was masked by the layer of paint. Her hazel eyes were a little wider than usual, and perhaps a little brighter. That was all. Countess, you restore my flagging faith in exalted magic. Your conquest of time must answer all doubts, observed the stranger. Time, sir, may be deceived momentarily, but never conquered. Beauty's great adversary is sometimes negligent, sometimes preoccupied, but ultimately invincible. In the face of that destroying power, neither beauty nor magic endures, replied Zerilin but glance in the mirror to discover your argument refuted. What a gallant liar you are, Muriel. You have not changed a whit in how long has it been this time? 8 years this time, four spent campaigning in Gedoone and later in the low crenets. Thereafter, Having attained that state of physical decrepitude so wrongly regarded as the outer mark of inner wisdom, I was appointed His Majesty's ambassador to Strel. Ah, cloistered as I am, even I have heard of your heroics in the Pelerian mutiny. Scarcely heroics, madame. Desperation graced with undeserved good fortune is the truer description.' "'yet you are called saviour of Gerencia, I believe. "'Such colourful sobriquets, like counterfeit jewels, "'are gained at little expense, "'worn briefly until their false lustre dims, "'then discarded and forgotten by all. "'You do yourself much injustice, as always. "'Your present eminence is but a fitting tribute "'to your accomplishments.' less perhaps than you deserve but greatly more than you acknowledge happily for all vonar your modesty does not blind the king to your merit it is said his majesty has called you home to accept a marshal's baton may i assume that the honour conveys high office in shireen if it does so i shall be obliged to decline the marshal's baton i would accept gladly if it is offered but not a post in For reasons that you already know too well, I prefer to live abroad. Still so obstinate after so many years? Always. How long do you remain among us, then? Two or three months, perhaps. One purpose in my return has already been accomplished. And you, Countess, have you tired of your seclusion at last, that you grace the court with your presence tonight?' Seclusion, sir, suits my years and, of late, my character. Tonight's appearance is but a brief aberration. I am here as sponsor to my young granddaughter, who now takes her place as maid of honor. To my mind, the child shows promise, but allow me to introduce her, and you may judge for yourself. Zerilin turned to her protégé. Exalted Elise vauderevel, may I present His Excellency, the Cavalier Fakens Muriel, His Majesty's Envoy to Strel. Cavalier, Miss vauderevel. Excellency, Elise curtsied. Exalted Miss, he bent low over her hand, you carry the mists of early springtime in your eyes, such youth and grace must gladden the hearts of all beholders. Your excellency is too generous, but youth and grace must strew their blossoms at the feet of Gerencia's hero. His fame, reaching so far as the wilds of my own province, Fabec, may be likened to the noonday sun, overwhelming to the foggy mists of early springtime. The cavalier vomuriel laughed aloud at that, <laughs> Exalted Miss, I believe you favour your grandmother, and higher praise than that I cannot bestow. Allow me to be first in paying homage to the court's newest beauty. He could hardly have been more charming, yet somehow she fancied he grudged every moment that diverted his attention from her grandmother. As if to confirm her judgment, he favoured her with another perfectly gallant bow. "'then turned back to Zerilani. "'Madame, they play the dronado, "'some say invented by Galiziel when he first beheld you, "'walking at dawn in the gardens of Palace Melesh. "'If the story is not true, then it should be. "'Will you dance once more?' "'He extended his arm.' Cavalier, I thank you, but it is fifty years since I walked in the gardens of Mileche, and I am no longer fit for the Donado. She was almost certainly lying. What she really meant was that she didn't care to leave her granddaughter standing alone and ignored in the midst of a room full of strangers. Elise's face tightened. Zarilyn felt sorry for her, sorry for the country mouse. More and more she was wishing, wishing herself home in Quebec, where people looked up to her. Just when she was on the verge of inventing an attack of the vapors, a legitimate excuse to retire, a solid, dark figure materialized before her, bowed perfunctorily and straightened. Exalted Miss, honor me, suggested no less than the Duke of Ferrandt. The look he had given her, but a few minutes earlier, she had found offensive, and she had no reason to change her opinion now. His expression was arrogant, even insolent. The tone of his voice, downright peremptory. Her first impulse was to refuse him, royalty or no, but she quickly thought the better of it. Anything was better than continuing a wallflower. With only the briefest of hesitations— she accepted his arm, and he led her out. Realizing that the eyes of half the court were trained upon her, Elise silently prayed for a demeanor as unrevealing as Zara Lenz. Slanting a sidelong glance at her partner, she saw that he was studying her face and figure with the same unhurried, unconcealed deliberation that had already aroused her hostility and embarrassment. Of gratification. She looked away quickly, but not for long, for he swung her briskly about to face him, and she caught a strong, not unpleasant whiff of brandy and tobacco. Front proved an unexpectedly expert dancer, moving with a buoyancy surprising in a man so durably constructed. "'He spun her lightly through the steps "'and at least found herself enjoying the exercise. "'Despite her aversion to the duke, "'she was almost sorry when the dronado came to an end. "'As the music finished, she curtsied and extended her hand, "'expecting him to escort her back to her grandmother. "'Ferrante grasped her wrist firmly, "'and then he did not move. "'She threw him a startled glance.' "'which he met blandly. "'Your grace, exalted miss, I claim the next dance,' "'announced the duke. "'It is promised elsewhere,' she lied. "'Then your designated partner must humour my fancy. "'Impossible. Return me to my chaperone, if you please.' "'Not yet.' "'I wish it. Must I insist?' "'Not at all. Go if you must.' He bowed, maintaining his hold on her wrist. She jerked her arm, but he did not let go. She could not free herself without an obnoxious, without an obvious struggle. Was he mad or drunk? He appeared neither. Despite the inflammable breath, he was rock steady on his feet, his movements sure and controlled. Elise's eyes flew in search of Zeraline, who stood immersed in conversation with the cavalier Muriel, and totally unconscious of her plight. Not so the other courtiers, whose amused and knowing eyes she encountered everywhere. Had she been back at home in Quebec, she might have quietly ground the sharp high heel of her shoe into the instep of the too-insistent suitor, but here in Shireen, presumably one did not employ such tactics against his majesty's own brother. Elise's dilemma was resolved when the musicians struck up again, this time an old-fashioned slow truège. Ferrante captured her free hand. She could feel the heat of his flesh through her glove. For a moment, she pulled back, glaring at him then relaxed and reluctantly followed his lead. There, that is better, it is not, is it not? Better for whom, your grace? She'd got control of her face again, and her expression was mildly disdainful. Your little jest does not please me. I rarely jest. That is your misfortune, but one not. "'but not one with which I intend to concern myself. "'Your intentions will alter as you come to know me.' "'I do not particularly care to know you.' "'So much the better. "'The majority of women, ambitious of achieving indispensability, "'insist on plumbing the deeps of a man's character. "'Thereafter, their self-love is wounded when "'when he fails to return the compliment.' It is refreshing to meet one willing to forgo the preliminaries. I do not understand his grace's meaning. I had thought to find you more perceptive, but with such a face it hardly matters. His grace attempts gallantry, she inquired with the suspicion of a sneer. I can't trouble myself with petty speeches. You'll have to do without them from me. "'Possibly there are other sources. "'You will not seek them. "'His grace appears confident, with reason, "'when all is said, you are an unknown, "'a newcomer, indifferently connected, "'and of relatively obscure provincial origins, "'while I am Ferrante. (laughs) "'You are young, but presumably ambitious, "'else you would not be here. "'Thus the outcome is not difficult to predict.' He shrugged minimally. There is the reality of it. The reality of it is that the Duke's dreary cynicism is equaled only by his coarse presumption. Her grandmother would have shuddered to hear her, but her mouth seemed to have bolted. The Duke, however, appeared unruffled, remarking only, My plain speaking offends you, but you must learn to bear it. "'Must? Do I hear you correctly?' "'Probably not, in the midst of these chattering monkeys. "'There is a quiet chamber at the end of the gallery, "'where we shall not be disturbed. "'We will go there now, and you'll hear me clearly enough. "'Come.' "'Her astonished eyes jumped to his face. "'We may finish the trierge first, if you prefer,' he offered, "'evidently misinterpreting the look.' "'Your grace may finish it alone.' "'Freeing herself with a sharp twist of the wrist, "'Elise turned and stalked away, "'indifferent to the avid attention "'of the surrounding spectators. "'If he tried to stop her again, "'if he dared laid a hand on her, "'she would step on his foot "'no matter whose brother he was. Ferrante, however, made no attempt to detain her. "'If she had glanced back, She would have seen him gazing after her, unwanted interest stirring in his dark eyes. It seemed that Duke's attention had established her acceptability, for now everyone wanted to dance with her. No longer was she the wallflower dependent upon her chaperone's company. In fact, caught up in a whirl of activity, she quite lost track of Zerulin's whereabouts. Thereafter, she danced every dance, from gavotte to dorado, with an assortment of partners that rivaled even l'Alizé's. Every gallant, and some not so young, was determined to inspect the new maid of honor at close range. They were so numerous and so varied that Elise couldn't hope to remember all the names and faces, but few of them made an impression. The Marquis Faudrillard, he of the moon-face and stellar fortune, was placid and dull, filled with talk of his country estate, his new and splendid townhouse, his carriages, horses, yacht, and coin collection. Still, he seemed kindly and harmless— and when he offered to drive her around the ring at Havilak Gardens in his jewel of an open phaeton, she did not refuse outright. The Count Rouville nisroire vaux livant whose black hair, translucent blue eyes, and faultless profile had won him the reputation as handsomest man at court, was dashing and impetuous as vaux Leviard was staid and mundane. A poet of acknowledged talent, author of countless citing sonnets, sighing sonnets, poignant pastorals, and languishing lyrics, he seemed the ideal figure of romance, yet suffered one significant disadvantage. Despite the greatness of his title, vaux was all but penniless, his fine appearance at court maintained by courtesy of the moneylenders. He was now thousands of recos in debt, more than he could ever hope to repay, save by means of a wealthy bride's vast dowry. The exalted Vecchi Vicerar, third son of the Duke of Lysine, was loquacious, ebullient, and flown with eccentric enthusiasms. Short, slight, endlessly energetic, With tiny black eyes, lightning, a wide-mouthed, snub-nosed face, his natural ugliness was enhanced by fashionably jeweled teeth. Diamond chips had been set in two incisors, and each canine sported tiny emeralds resembling bits of trapped watercress. At least found the teeth unsettling, yet nothing could quell the charm of Vicky's conversation, which swooped dizzily from topic to topic, but always returned like a well-trained falcon to the matter of magic. Vicky fancied himself heir to the magic of his forebears. How true this might be was difficult to judge as a courtier and amateur jockey the young man could not have studied the art with anything approaching the dedication of a true master like Uncle Quince. Noting her skepticism, he promised proof to satisfy her doubts before the night was out. Then, fiendishly skillful in rousing her curiosity to fever pitch, he bowed and left her. Exalted Stasi Crev, slim and elegant, was the best dancer of them all. The witty Viscount vaux Renoche, almost as clever as Drefzinosan, paid outrageous compliments. Cavalier Vaux-Ferneux, no, notorious rake-and-duelist, had the delicate, smooth face of a girl and stammering speech. Red-headed, freckled, Baron Vaux-Plenier-Vorenne bombarded her with risque jokes, Savoring her reactions with the air of a mischievous urchin. All were satisfyingly attentive. Perhaps that had more to do with their own private rivalries than with the new maid's attractions, decorative though she was. But Elise was not inclined to analyze the pleasure of her success out of her success. As the party expanded from presence chamber out onto balconies, down the galleries, into the swan chamber where the buffet waited, She moved in a cloud of cavaliers. She drank champagne, Beau le Levant, nibbled Ortolan wings with Plunier, Vaux-Aren, flirted shamelessly with Vaux-Renache. Then back to the presence chamber for more dancing, with a glorious plethora of partners. The first sight to meet her eyes, there was Zerolynne Vau out upon the floor, pacing beautifully through the gavotte opposite the cavalier Vau At a distance, Zerolynne looked like a girl in antiquated costume, while Vau Meunier seemed courtly and perfect as a figure of legend. It was pretty to see them, but Elise had no time to admire. There was Vaucreve to consider, along with Vaufergneau, Vauly-Villard, and the others. Her attention was occupied, but not so completely that she failed to note the Duke of Ferrante persistently hovering at the edge of her vision. He was always there, off to the side, watching her with his flatly purposeful dark eyes. Twice more he had tried to approach her, and each time she had sought the sanctuary, of another partner. After the second attempt he had withdrawn to study her from a distance and she had managed to dismiss him from her thoughts until she encountered the corrosive stare of Madame Vaubilisandre, whose undisguised animosity reminded her that no exalted female, save the Queen, had by word or gesture acknowledged her existence since her entrance they were deliberately ignoring her. It was awkward, but at least didn't waste much time worrying. There was little she could do. Moreover, her grandmother's training had fortified her against self-doubt. Lightly, she danced, knowing that the eyes of all the court followed her, for this one night at least. Prettily, she traded amusing rococo artificialities with her partners, and the hours whirled by. Shortly after midnight, there came a brief lull, during which it was announced that Vicky viceroy had consented to favor the company with an exhibition of exalted magic in the Swan Chamber. Recalling their earlier conversation, Elise smiled to herself those determined to witness the marvel included the king and queen the duke of ferrant and a number of the greatest courtiers all of them intrigued by any novelty in the swan chamber key viceroy stood beside the buffet table when the spectators had assembled when he had spied Elise standing among them the young man began to speak a born showman with a natural flair for drama Vicky wasted little time on preliminaries. His brief introductory remarks, calculated to rouse the awe of the listeners, were followed by a half-minute still, brow-pleating silence. At last the silence was broken by an incoherent muttering. Vicky's eyes were squeezed shut, his lips quivered with emotion. He gestured sinuously. As his muttering waxed in intensity, the sweat started out on his brow. The pace of his movements built, his breath came in gasps, and a low moan of mystic fulfillment escaped him. At that moment, the light of the chandeliers began to wane. Within seconds, five hundred candle flames dwindled to tiny points of light no brighter than distant stars. Only the candles in the two wall sconces behind the table burned bright, and by that backlight, Vicky was visible in striking silhouette. A murmur of excited admiration arose, in which Elise did not join. She might have been more impressed had she not so often watched Uncle Quinns perform similar feats without benefit of theatrics. By comparison, Vicky Viceroy seemed a bit of a mountebank. Staring eyes fixed upon the table, the key uttered an unintelligible command. For a moment, nothing happened. And then, amidst a sprightly clinking of glass and silver, a host of ornate edible confections came to life. A brace of golden suckling pigs, honey-glazed and wreathed in ivy, stood up on their platter, spitting the apples from their mouths. A roast peacock clothed in full plumage fanned its tail and climbed to its feet. A flock of assorted headless game birds rose up, flapping their naked crispy wings, while the pastry lid of a great pie sprang a fissure, liberating a horde of baked quail. Jellied eels began to wriggle, poached salmon stood on their tails, and a huge boiled lobster rattled its scarlet armor imbued with impossible elasticity a gang of multi-hued fruits and vegetables bounced about like tennis balls above them all mounted a flower decked pedestal the great ice sculpture carved in the likeness of a sphinx opened her beautiful predator's eyes and spread her frigid wings gravely the edibles bowed to king dunulus who smiled well pleased with the spectacle Queen Lalizé, obviously enchanted, clapped her hands, and the courtiers ooed in delight. For a moment longer, they seemed to stand there, alive and sentient, before the illusion broke. The air stirred, the solid forms wavered, shifted and blurred, and the edibles resumed their rightful, inanimate state. The lights came up, and all was as it had been. The performance was over. And the courtiers broke into spontaneous enthusiastic applause. Cries of admiration arose, and the king himself addressed a word or two of praise to the magician. Vecchi accepted the tribute with apparent humility, belied by his tr- triumphant eyes. Elise smiled and applauded politely, while inwardly uh, inwardly wondering, is that all? The spectacle the spectacle had been charming beyond doubt, but minor, and the abrupt perfunctory conclusion was distinctly clumsy. Compared to the magic of Quinsvo Deravel, the Key Viceroy's antics were downright amateurish. Yet nobody seemed to know it. The faces around her were bright with what looked to be genuine admiration. Were they being polite? Or was it possible that they truly didn't know the difference between trifling diversion and real magic? Familiar since earliest childhood with the work of a master, Elise had always taken her uncle's abilities for granted. He was simply Uncle Quinn's, delightful and eccentric, his feats but an ordinary manifestation of exalted talent, nothing more the rescue of dref had perhaps begun to open her eyes for the first time to the full wonder of her kinsman's accomplishments and now she saw the king's courtiers uniformly awed by a little display that would have set quits vo DEREVEL yawning beyond doubt vicky himself was innocently certain of his own success here he came, shouldering his way through the crowd to Elise's side, his air of gleeful self-satisfaction verging on the unseemly. Elise congratulated him, complimented him. His, her eyes were wide with the admiration that he seemed to expect. Artificial admiration. But Vicky didn't guess it. They almost never did. So much her own experience confirmed by Zerilin's advice, had already taught her. Senting conquest, as he imagined, Vicky now trailed her everywhere. So, too, did a number of others, most of them subtly and skillfully encouraged, with the exception of Ferrante. Conversation ranged widely, jumping from politics to art to sport to the latest gossip of the salons so swiftly and bewilderingly that at least, sometimes confused, found herself relying on her eyes and her smile, which usually served her well enough. The best conversations were those whose topics, if any, were afterward impossible to recall. One piece of intelligence, however, stuck her mind, stuck in her mind. Later, she could not remember its source. But after the ball... As she powdered foot, but after the pa- after the ball, as the powdered footman conducted her through the mirrored corridors of the biviere to the maids' quarters, wherein her belongings were already waiting, she considered a bit of news that had somehow snagged her imagination for reasons she could hardly define it seemed significant that Shorvi Nereen's latest book, The Promise, should have been banned, its author outlawed. Nirien had asked for it, of course, what with his demands for the abolishment of exalted privilege, for the reform of the legal system, for a charter of human rights, and for the re-establishment of an old-style elected century to limit the power of the king. More was involved, of course, than the mere proscription of some renegade lawyer's rantings. Nerian had already collected a sizable band of devoted followers, the self-styed Nerias, Nerianesters, whose complaints might go so far in influencing popular opinion. It was wise to silence that too eloquent voice, and therefore it made good sense to order Nerian's arrest. Elise was sorry for the punishment seemed severe. She would not have wished confinement in the sepulchre upon her worst enemy, but there was obviously no help for it. For the sake of the nation, Shorvi Neryan had to disappear. It might seem harsh, but public safety sometimes demanded strong measures. In a modest apartment overlooking University Square in the bohemian section of Shireen, known as Rat Town, a man worked with feverish haste. He was throwing garments, keepsakes, books, and papers into the small trunk that stood open on the sitting room floor. All too soon, the box was full to overflowing, too full to close, and its owner, pale but determined, began pulling clothes out and flinging them away to make room for more of the precious books. Before he had completed this task, there came a knocking, and he froze, breathlessly still, save for his hunted eyes. "'Shorvi, it's I. Dakel,' a hurried whisper, a familiar voice. Shorvy Neryem opened the door to admit a hugely tall and broad young man with a round, soft face whose boyishness was deliberately offset by the addition of a bristling ginger mustache. Neryem himself was altogether, in, altogether different, middle-aged, no more than medium height, with narrow-shouldered, unathletic build, brown hair going to gray, and a mobile, aesthetically nondescript face, he was saved from anonymity only by the uncommon brilliance and depth of his intelligent brown eyes. It's official, declared Decal. They're coming for you. In fact, they're on their way. So, I'm almost inclined to stay and greet them. Do that, and you'll spoil the good work of all your friends whose efforts deserve better. "'Come, sir. There's a cart and a driver waiting below "'to carry you to a safe, safe house in the 8th district. "'One of our lads pass, will pass the word to madame, your wife. "'I'll take the box. Don't trouble about that. "'But now's the time to move.' "'Who owns this safe house?' Miriam did not stir. "'One of ouf cousins cousins, a madame hero, something of the sort.' And does this Madame Heron know the risk involved in harboring a fugitive? Nothing to it if she's not caught, is there? Fine bravado, my friend. Come, no need for concern. Doubtless this cousin feels the risk worthwhile, as do we all. But you should know you add to her danger by dawdling here. It sticks in my craw, this slinking and skulking. No, you, you needn't say anything Decal. I'm coming. "'Here, let me give you a hand with that box.' Together they forced down the lid of the trunk, and young Dekal hoisted this heavy burden on his shoulder with disconcerting ease. Shorvi touched the pocket of his loose summer coat, verifying for the hundredth time the presence of a rolled sheaf of paper, the unfinished manuscript of his latest treatise. Satisfied, he nodded, and the two men left the apartment for the last time, made their way down four creaky flights of stairs, past the dozing concierge, and out into the street where the cart awaited. Nerian stopped short at the sight of the driver, who was a stranger. He glimpsed long limbs, a youthful face. "'That's Beck, the new man,' Dekel explained. "'A very cool hand, I can tell you.' Nerian nodded without emphasis, as if withholding judgment." Kelb deposited the trunk and back, and they climbed up onto the seat. Beck cracked his whip, and the cart rolled off down Sidette Alley. Nerian cast one uneasy glance back over his shoulder, just as a party of gendarmes rounded the corner at the end of the street. Spying the cart, the gendarmes broke into a run. Nerian nudged his companion, and Dekel lifted two fingers to his mouth to shrill a piercing whistle. Instantly, Cider Alley swarmed with shouting university students, Nerianestas all. The noise, crush, and sudden confusion were astounding, but under the leadership of a young general, clouded in false white hair and whiskers, order swiftly emerged. Efficiently, the students ranged themselves across the alley the gendarmes charged and the shouting swelled to a roar but the line held beck whipped his horse to a rattling canter the cart bounced and jolted over the cobbles down cider alley then out onto wide university street which pa- which bypassed two colleges then carried straight on into the wretched slums of the eighth district many a citizen gaped and surprised at surprise after the hurrying vehicle, but no one attempted to interrupt its progress, and apparently no one recognized its celebrated passenger. Behind them, Cider Alley rang with screams, threats, and curses as assorted denizens of Rat Town came rushing from the taverns and tenements to hurl themselves into the fight. Few knew the actual cause of contention, but that didn't matter enough to see that university men defied the hated gendarmerie. The unlucky soldiers, faced with overwhelming force, were swiftly chased from the neighborhood, escaping with minor cuts and bruises. Curiously, the defeat of the gendarmes failed to appease the crowd, whose emotions, pent over the space of many lifetimes, seemed suddenly to demand outlet. At the same time that Chorvy was being ushered into his garret refuge in the boarding house of Madame Heroux, situated, ironically enough, almost within the shadow of the sepulchre itself, the mob raged through the streets of Rat Town, smashing, rending, and looting all in its path. Every wine shop along Cider Alley was picked clean. Cookshops were raided, windows and glass lanterns were shattered, and bonfires bloomed like orange flowers. Presently, the crowd exploded from the alley out into University Square, where the old king's tower rose behind the ten monarchs, life-size marble representations of ten of the present King Dunyeles' most illustrious ancestors. For some reason, the sight of the monarchs seemed to induce hysteria. Shrieks of execration arose, and the mob surged forward to rip the famous statues from their pedestals. The monarchs fell in quick succession to shatter upon the cobbles, but this impersonal annihilation brought no satisfaction. Stones appeared in the hands of the rioters, and with these crude instruments, the marble fragments were swiftly reduced to white gravel, kicked far and wide by plebeian feet. This done, the mob swirled howling through the square in search of fresh prey, and it was more than likely that the ancient lecture halls of the university would have fallen victim to popular wrath had not the crowd-queller of Shireen, in the company of his minions, arrived upon the scene. It was nearly dawn. The rioters, for all their rage, were tiring. The young Nereonestas had long since retired, their purpose accomplished. In the absence of strong leadership, the well-established fear of the queller reasserted itself, and slivers began peeling off of the human mass to disappear down darkened alleyways. Those remaining were slow to accept defeat. The Queller's masked followers were obliged to shoot no fewer than four before the crowd was persuaded to disperse. The wounded and dead were carried off, and the Queller's party withdrew soon after leaving University Square empty, save for a scattering of glass-bladed debris and a spread of white marble wreckage, all that remained of the ten monarchs. Sleep tight, dear listener, as dreams carry you away. Until we meet again, may peaceful nights grace your every sleep.